that we might eventually move towards that. And that made me think that perhaps the, the whole process of moving towards this perfection, perfection is a perfecting. And in that sense, perhaps it's already perfect where we are and that we don't really uh, need to worry too much about, oh, dang it, I, I gave thought, I gave rise to the thought of giving. Uh, but that we're, we're already on the path with this sort of is, you know, the sort of carrot hanging in front of the, the you know, the rabbit on a treadmill or something that, that, that keeps the thing moving, but, but not necessarily something that we ever really have to worry about getting to. And just the fact that we're moving towards it uh, means that we uh, already in some sense have this perfection. As we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, I think uh, Angyo mentions often that we sit because we are enlightened. Um, and therefore we, we strive towards this because we are enlightened, not that we are only enlightened once we are giving without giving rise to this thought. And this made me think of a, a question of, uh, you know, I, I think about, you know, how much to give, how, how much, how much is the right amount of giving? And it's a question that, you know, really is on my mind sometimes, for example, as a couple years ago, I've taken my first real job, uh, no longer a student and okay, I have a retirement fund. And my brother who loves to talk about finance and has very good, you know, advice about these things because it's something that he cares about. Um, he likes, he's kind of, he's, he's an information technology, so he likes to calculate and has a much more kind of technical mind than mine. So he's my person, my go-to person. I, I call up Andrew and, you know, all right, what's with this retirement account? You know, what, what is this? They want me to put 8% of my money in it. It's, it seems like a lot. And, you know, it seems like, you know, what happened if I just donated that 8% instead of, you know, putting it into my own retirement account? Could that, is that a possibility or... Do I put in 8% and then give another 8% to charity? You know, what, what, what on earth do I do with this? And of course he's telling me, no, put in as much as you possibly can. Um, you know, give, you know, give 16%, 20%, 25% is, you know, budget, budget as tightly as you can and put everything, you know, in that retirement account because as soon as, you know, you're, as soon as you have enough money to retire, then you're, you're, you know, independently wealthy, so to speak. You can do whatever you'd like at that point. And I thought, hmm, maybe at that point, then I can, you know, I can just spend these years accumulating wealth for myself and then retire. And wealth, in quotes, uh, a bit of an exaggeration being a visiting professor at a branch campus, but, uh, um, you know, accumulating enough money to retire and then I can just dedicate the rest of my time in my life once I turn 40 and I can retire or something if I save up, you know, 50% of my income. I can retire at 40 and then just spend the rest of my life dedicating. And I think, well, all right, but maybe, maybe that doesn't make any sense because, you know, what if I die and then that money gets, you know, okay, it's, it's dedicated, you know, it goes to my family and then, you know, they just put it in their retirement accounts and then, you know, they die and then it goes to their family and they just put it in their retirement accounts and it's never really doing anything. So what about the present moment, the present need? 
Uh, and I just realized, man, how do you possibly sort through all these, you know, how utilitarian can you be? How selfless, what happens if I give away all my money, but then, you know, there's a crisis and I can't take care of myself. And then I'm having to rely on other people's generosity, you know, to what extent do I need to be self-sufficient and just you, you, on and on. And I'm sure a lot of you have probably thought through kind of similar quandaries. And the, the conclusion, I have some more conclusions later, but my preliminary conclusion about this is that, you know, giving rise to all these thoughts of who's giving and who's receiving and how much do I give and how much do I give to other people and what's the size of the gift, all of these are starting to fall into the trap of, this is a very deliberate giving rise to thoughts of givers and gifts. And, and maybe I can just practice, so to speak. Maybe I can just uh, give what I can, give what seems right. Um, you know, there's a fundraiser for Center County and Owen's a part of it. Okay, well, how much seems appropriate? All right, I'll give this much. My yoga teacher here in State College is asking for donations while she can't give in-person classes. All right, you know, just throw out a number. Okay, I can probably survive if I give, you know, X amount of dollars, all right. Um, and just try to respond to the moment, I guess, seems, seems fairly practical. And I'll come back to that later about kind of the how much to give, but another consideration I had was material versus immaterial gifts. Um, going back to the Diamond Sutra, a large part of the Diamond Sutra is generating these incredibly large numbers. And there's all sorts of, it happens three or four times throughout the sutra where the Buddha says to his disciple Sabuti, something like, Sabuti, imagine that um, there were as many, you know, imagine all the grain of sand in the river Ganges. And apparently the river Ganges has a very fine grain sand and it's a huge river. So that's a lot of grains of sand. Now imagine that there were worlds, as many worlds as those grains of sand, and in those worlds, as many rivers as grains of sand in the Ganges, and all of the grains of sand and all of those rivers are filled with jewels, and imagine giving a gift that's all those jewels. Uh, so this is just, you know, you know, giving to the, to the nth degree, just an expression of a near infinite amount of, of value. And the Buddha says, you know, would, and the Buddha says, would, would the merit of a gift like that be great? And his disciple Sabuti says, oh yes, it would be very, very immeasurably great. And the Buddha says, yes, it would be. But even just the gift of a teaching, of memorizing one four-line gatha, which is like a four-line little teaching, concentrated teaching, memorizing and explaining and understanding that gata and explaining it to others, the gift would be immeasurably, immeasurably greater than whatever that material gift of all those jewels would be. So it's not really denying that the, which I found interesting, it's not denying that the, the gift of jewels would be great because we, you know, people, I, I think there's a tradition of giving to the, the monasteries and they need 
certain resources to eat and to have shelter and to offer incense and so forth. Uh, but what's much greater than that is the gift of the Dharma that not just teaching it, I was thinking, but even something like meditation uh, uh, that allows for us to give our presence and our patience and our compassion and I, allows us in a sense to give us the best of ourselves uh, that that's also a gift of our practice, a gift of the Dharma. And, and in some sense, that is probably even, um, you know, that this can be also be an immeasurably great gift. And so it's something that, that we have to consider. Um, one way that I was thinking about this kind of non-material giving, just thinking about, um, thinking about this question is, and, and it relates to the question of giving rise to the, the gift and the giver and the receiver, is this semester, uh, when we transitioned to online classes, it created a lot of chaos and created a lot of disparity between students that had, you know, fiber optic internet connections and brand new high-end laptops and students that had a smartphone that was, who knows, several years old and, you know, a shoddy Wi-Fi connection or even just a data plan that they shared with family members. And not to mention students that were, you know, in some beautiful isolated house in the countryside with lots of space and lots of, uh, resources at their disposal and students that were, you know, in a two bedroom apartment with a family member who was sick. Uh, and we're asking all of these students to perform, uh, sort of taking them out of the equal, relatively more equal space of, the, of campus and having them perform for classes in just incredibly, incredibly uh, diverse, disparate, uh, situations at home. And there was an article that was shared about, you know, don't do, the title was something provocative, like don't do a good job of online teaching this spring. And the idea was that, you know, don't, we can't take this too seriously. Uh, and, it, you know, we don't know what the conditions that the students are in. We don't know how much uh, stress they're under. We don't really know quite all what they're going through. So don't try to be a superstar teacher here. Let's just try to get by because that's probably what a lot of your students will be doing. And I said, all right, you know, that's a really good point. And it said recommended just being really open and flexible with what students are able to do. And I try to be a pretty flexible with students anyways. So I thought, yeah, I can do this. And so, you know, sometimes a student would vanish for a couple weeks and they would email me saying, sorry, you know, my, my, my grandmother, my aunt died of COVID uh, and it's just been, been really tough on my family and, you know, compounding problems. You know, is there any way I can turn this assignment in late? And sure, you know, that's, that's you know, it's, it's not a problem. I really don't mind. I'm, and I stress that I didn't mind late work. I pretty much accepted whatever late work. And I got back some of the 
the, the warmest emails of thank you so much. I'm so stressed out. This is, this is so kind of you. And it was a very simple thing. It didn't feel like giving really. It was just the situation and responding to the situation. It wasn't like, oh, I'll be magnanimous and, and allow this poor student who's in a tough situation. It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling myself. I'm, I'm really having trouble staying focused. I'm going through some things myself. And um, so it just seemed, kind of seemed like a, a moment where, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of this giving rise to the gift and the giver and the receiver. Uh, however, this also leads to another kind of paradox or problem of, ah, damn it. Now I'm thinking about the gift and the giver and the receiver and thinking about, ah, look how naturally I gave and just responded to the situation. So there seems to be, it seems to be a hard thing to get outside of. And I thought, well, the, the Diamond Sutra is doing that too. It's claiming, look, look how cool the Buddha is. The, you know, look how cool bodhisattvas are. They're giving without giving rise to the gift and the giver and the receiver. But, but here they are talking about it. So that made me scratch my head. And I don't mean that as a criticism, but just this question that we can't get outside of it. Um, and, and, and it made me think that, you know, we, we can't get ourselves into our perfect giving state with logic. Uh, we, can't, we can't reason our way into the right amount to give. Uh, we can't read a book, even the Diamond Sutra, we can't really rely on as an image of the right amount to give. It's maybe a trace or a footstep of, of what this is. It's you know, sort of the finger pointing to the moon, maybe. Um, but it, it taps into, um, it taps into the sense that we have, that we have more to give, I think. That, and not necessarily, oh, I'm not giving enough and I wanna give more, but that we can believe that we're, on, we're, we're going through a process or a transformation that, that logic just, just fails at because we can't know what the world is gonna be like and what situations are going to arise and know what the right amount to give will be in any moment. Um, but that through practice, maybe we can, we can get there um, through this aspiration. It gives us an image of, of the aspiration. And it made me think of uh, something that Angyo uh, said one time when talking about the perfections that's always stuck with me, that about the, about the, the lack of separation between the perfections, that he described them as six little piles of sand close to each other. And at first, you know, maybe they're separated. And as we work on them, we had a little bit of sand, you know, we have sand, our practice gives sand to these piles. And we put a little bit of sand on this pile of generosity and this other one of patience and this other one of energy, this other one of wisdom. And eventually uh, we just end up with a mountain, <laughs> you know, just a big pile, one pile of sand. Eventually they start to merge and through these perfections, uh, through our practices, they all, they all reinforce each other. And I was thinking that, of how this works with generosity and the second perfection of morality. Yeah, it seems moral to give if I have more than someone. 
um, that I don't need. I, you know, it seems like a natural thing to give as, as a practice of morality. Um, as, as patience, tolerance, or forbearance, all three words for the, the third perfection. Uh, as we build up our ability to live with less, uh, as realizing that we don't need, I don't need my fancy technology and I don't need, uh, you know, this many canned goods in my pantry and I don't need uh, this much security. As we, as we learn to tolerate less, giving becomes a natural response to that. Uh, the fourth one of, um, of energy as we, you know, I think it takes our energy or effort as we, I think a lot of giving, especially giving our time for me is very difficult as we, as you know, as I, I, I have the energy to help, to volunteer, to, uh, to make an impact to whatever it might be as my, my, my energy and my effort towards, uh, towards helping others increases, my generosity may naturally increase. The fifth perfection of meditation, I think, is very clear. This helps us, I think, if anything, probably lots of things, but it seems just responding to the situation adequately is often a matter of giving, whether that's a material or an immaterial gift. Uh, we can learn to know how to respond. And the sixth perfection of wisdom, of prajna, not just wisdom, but especially the wisdom of, of emptiness, this really maybe gets us towards that sort of diamond sutra ideal of no giver, no gift, no, no receiver. Um, as, we, as we lose a sense, as we see the self as empty, what does holding on even mean? Uh, why, why would we hold on to anything? Why, for whom are we holding on? So I thought that was just a reflection I had this morning that made me realize that, you know, my anxiety about what's the right amount to give uh, you know, it's like working out. If you just, you know, you can't just do a lot of bicep curls and get huge biceps. You know, you want to sort of balance. You got to do ab workout and leg workout. Um, just with the, the way to perfect generosity, oddly enough, is not just giving, uh, but rather involves uh, all of these interconnected practices that are not separate from giving. Uh, and one last reflection briefly that I thought of was the, the question of reciprocity. My uncle, who is sort of a sales guru, uh, or is precisely a sales guru, and he's into this ethical persuasion, a sort of social business-oriented psychology. And part of me as a sort of non-capitalist wants to cringe at it and say, oh, it's just, you know, he's just trying to, to move more products. And, but... I actually really like talking with him about it, and it's it's quite an interesting process. And one of the one of the aspects of it is reciprocity. That part of sales for him is being reciprocal, which is interesting because you think of sales as just like, all right, give me give me your money and I'll give you a product and that kind of reciprocity, but it's not that at all. It's that the way that the way that giving itself, just the way we are as as humans. As, as bodhisattvas um, are people with, with, with the bodhisattva ideal at least, the act of giving just tends to get generate more giving. 
when we see acts of generosity, it, it inspires us. And so this question of how much to give and we're afraid of giving too much and maybe not getting it back, uh, I think some of my anxiety about that's alleviated to some degree by just knowing that this kind of pay it forward idea, which is very simple, but giving inspires more giving. And I think hoarding and greed inspires more greed in this cosmic or karmic sense. Um, so just kind of a reminder for myself that's arisen out of my reflecting on generosity this week that um, we're often wanting someone else to give to us. Okay, once I have security, once I've been given to, then I'll give back. Um, but that just trying to remind myself that when I have the opportunity to start giving and it often seems to uh, create more, more giving just, just through that act. So it's just another one of my reflections. Um, so with that, uh, I will conclude and uh, thank you all for listening. We're now open the floor for discussion, comments, in terms of your practice, 